Hello and welcome to this Lumen Verum Apologetics Lecture by Father Peter Joseph on the topic, Adam and Eve. This February 2009 recording comes from one of Lumen Verum's Friday Evening Apologetics Lectures at St. Michael the Archangel Parish in Belfield. Father Peter Joseph is the current parish priest of St. Dominic's Parish in Flemington. So, Adam and Eve, the church teaches the whole human race, the present human race, is descended from Adam and Eve. That's the essence of my talk, so if you don't need to hear the evidence, you can go home now, but that's the essence. I said I'll let this talk could be very repetitive, because Adam and Eve, fact and fiction, the answer is fact, not fiction, but why the fiction, and what are the facts, and what's the basis for the facts, that's the content of the talk. Well, Firstly, in the Old Testament, in the book of Genesis, it's the very obvious sense of sacred scripture before the creation of Adam. It says in Genesis 2.5, before Adam appears, there was no man to till the ground. And we know, of course, the meaning of Eve and the, the designation of Eve in Genesis uh, 2 or Genesis 3.20. Eve is the mother of all the living. So, if she's the mother of all the living, that means that there's no other mothers hanging around contemporaneous with Eve. And this understanding of Adam and Eve as one man, one woman, the original father and mother of the human race, is reasserted a number of times in the Old Testament. For example, Wisdom 7.1 I also am mortal, like all men, a descendant of the first-formed child of earth. And in Tobias chapter 8, I hope everybody here has read the book of Tobias. It's a beautiful story. A beautiful, beautiful story about Jewish devotion, piety, care for the dead, fidelity to God, overriding whatever other cultures or things may be going on around you. It's a beautiful story of God's providence, God's uh, intervention, saving a man who's faithful to God, who suffers faithfully. So a beautiful story. Everybody should read the book of Tobias. Well, Tobias 8, in the RSV version, Tobias began to pray, Blessed are you, O God of our fathers. You made Adam and gave him Eve, his wife, as a helper and support. From them the race of mankind has sprung. And then, of course, in the New Testament, in the genealogy, which I won't read out, in St. Luke's Gospel, St. Luke's Gospel Unlike St. Matthew, St. Matthew has a genealogy of our Lord which goes back to Abraham. Because Abraham is the father of all the Jews and therefore our Lord is a true Jew, having been descended from Abraham. But St. Luke's genealogy goes all the way back to Adam. So it links our Lord to Adam. In other words, our Lord too is a child of Adam. But then to go to the more theological part, so to speak, of the New Testament... Romans chapter 5 has the classic text talking about one man for whom death came and one man for whom life came. Romans chapter 5 verse 12. I'll read just portions of it. Therefore as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin and so death spread to all men and so on. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even though over those whose sins were not like the transgression of Adam, 
who was a type of the one who was to come. So St. Paul's saying Adam was a type of the one who was to come. Type in the Bible means a prefiguring image. We say the Paschal Lamb was a type of Christ. It's a prefiguring image of Christ, the new Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world with his own blood. He's no mere animal, he's a man and his blood is shed for our sins. And Israel is a type of the church. Uh, Moses is a type of Christ, so to speak, because he's a prophet, he's a leader of the people, he receives the commandments from God. And our Lord in the New Testament does all that Moses did and much more for. He gives us the true manner, the true bread from heaven and so on. So Adam, St. Paul says Adam was a type of the one who was to come. So he's designating Adam in a very specific way, obviously as one person, this one man, prefigured this one other man. And then in the verses following, or this is all Romans chapter 5, if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift of the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the effect of that one man's sin. So he's talking about Adam, that one man, and Jesus, that other man, who's the new Adam. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brings justification. If because of one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace, etc., reign through the one man, Jesus Christ. So notice it's one man, one man, one man. And seven times in Romans chapter 5, verses 12 to 19, St. Paul speaks of Adam as one man. The one man through whom sin entered the world, and Jesus of Christ, of course, is the one man through whom grace was restored to the world, where sin abounded, grace more than abounded. So, in St. Paul, the contrast between Adam and our Lord is a major point of understanding our Lord as the Redeemer of man, because it's based on the fact that Adam was the one who brought the downfall of man. So the parallel in St. Paul is between one man Adam and one man Jesus Christ. But if, if Adam was many first men, then the whole parallel com completely collapses and the whole passage just becomes completely meaningless. And all the other texts which I've quoted from Tobit and Wisdom and other passages of the Old Testament, not only are they somewhat mistaken in the parallelism, but they're actually asserting something erroneous. So from the Old Testament, the New Testament, we pass to the fathers. At the moment I'm just considering the historical existence of Adam and Eve. I'm not going into the details of original sin, which I can talk about later on. I'm just talking about, was there one man, Adam? Was there one woman, Eve? Are they the one mother and father of the human race? Are they the common parents? Are they our first parents? This is all I'm looking at at the moment. Well, in the fathers... Many of the early fathers, such as St. Irenaeus and St. Justin, following the idea of St. Paul, who called Jesus the new Adam, or the second Adam, St. Justin Martyr is the first of the fathers to develop the idea and then apply this idea to Mary, who is the new Eve. I think Robert Haddad gave a talk here on St. Justin Martyr, if I'm not mistaken, or somewhere recently. Anyway, St. Justin Martyr... Uh, he was a lawyer and he converted and in Rome, if I'm not mistaken, about the year 170 
he was martyred, he was put to death because he refused to sacrifice to the gods. And he wrote two apologies, meaning two defences of the Christian religion. And he was a magnificent apologist because it, it seemed almost single-handedly he developed all sorts of extraordinary arguments in proof and defence of the Christian religion as being the true religion for anyone who wants to follow the true wisdom, as being the true religion for a Jew who already believes in the Old Testament, and as being the true religion, which is the way confirmed by miracles and consistency and so on, that any wise person should follow, who wants to follow the true Logos, the Word, the Word of God. So he was an extraordinary apologist, and he was the first one who said, who called Mary the new Eve, the second Eve. And the idea is, of course, Mary, or let's say to begin, Eve, was tempted by the fallen angel to distrust God's providence and plan and was thereby tempted and fell into disobedience and brought man down because Adam followed her. Mary, the new Eve, believed the message of the good angel Gabriel trusted in God's providence and plan, obeyed God's message through the angel and man was raised up through Jesus Christ who was sprung from her. So this is the parallelism between Eve and Mary. Mary is the new Eve, the second Eve where man fell through Eve, man is raised in the new Eve and so on. Well, if there's no first Eve or if there were many, many Eves then the whole parallelism, parallelism is just destroyed. And it means that when we talk about Jesus as the second Adam and Mary as the new Eve, then what we're saying is that for 20 centuries now, Jesus and Mary have been given useless and meaningless titles by fathers, saints, doctors, popes, councils, everybody. For 20 centuries they've been absolutely meaningless titles because there was no Adam and there was no Eve to begin with. Therefore, there was Adam. There wasn't. The church doesn't use meaningless titles. The Second Vatican Council talks about Adam and Eve and Jesus and Mary in the same parallelism, which I'll quote later. Fourthly, the Catholic doctrine of redemption. Catholic doctrine of redemption depends, of course, upon the Catholic doctrine of original sin. And the doctrines of original sin and redemption require us to believe that we're all descended from Adam and that, to use St. Paul's phrase, we sinned in him. All men sinned in him. Why? Because he was our parent. He was our common father. And he, at that point in time, was the, with his wife Eve, the entire human race. The whole human race was there. All of human nature was present in him. And so we inherited his sin. And that's why we inherit that need of redemption. And the Council of Trent in 1546 issued a solemn decree on original sin, which everybody should read sooner or later, before they die. <laughs> before you can get to heaven in purgatory, you'll have to read this decree on original sin, because really you've got to understand it. And in that decree on 15, or 1546 on original sin, it speaks of the sin of, quote, the first man, Adam. So, if people say, if people ask, well, does the church teach that Adam and Eve are real and historic? We say, yes, the church does teach that. The Council of Prince spoke of the sin of the first man, Adam. They didn't say the first men or the first human beings on the face of the earth. No, the first man, Adam. Now, 
of course, since the propagation of the of belief in evolution, the idea that certain ape-like creatures became human over time, and therefore this idea arose that since there were apes all over the face of the earth, or spread over the face of the earth to some degree, therefore human beings would have been popping up here and there, because you know apes become human after given enough time. <laughs> therefore, this belief was propagated from the 1800s onwards, unheard of before in earlier centuries, this belief was propagated that there must have been many atoms of these, and all, in other words, there must have been many human beings, male and female, on the face of the earth that appeared at more or less the same time. And therefore, there's no one father and mother of the human race. Belief in evolution led to belief in what we call polygenism. Poly means many genism, we're talking about origin, so a multi-origin, many people being present at the beginning of the human race. So Pope Pius XII in 1950, in his encyclical Humanae Generis, which dealt with modern errors, and just about every single error named in that encyclical you will hear today. Not at Lumberberum, but at other places. Not in this parish, but in other parishes. <laughs> well, polygenism, belief in several original ancestors, was named by Pope Pius XII, and he said, Christ's faithful cannot embrace a theory which involves the existence after Adam's time of some earthly race of men, truly so-called, who were not descended from him as the ancestor of all men. Or else supposes that Adam was the name given to a multiplicity of original ancestors. You hear that all the time, especially if you go to whatever university or teacher's college, sooner or later one lecture will say, well, Adam just means, signifies a, a bunch of men, many, many men at the beginning of time. It's not one particular man. And then the Second Vatican Council, which I'll quote below, confirms that in the way it speaks of Adam and Eve. And in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, promulgated in 1992, final official Latin text, 1997, I went through the text, there's at least 13 times it speaks of Adam, or Adam and Eve, or our first parents, or the first man Adam. So at least 13 times, original sin, <coughs> or Adam and Eve, are asserted positively in a very clear fashion. Now the first question that even youngsters come up with sometimes is, well if Adam and Eve had only Cain and Abel, where did everyone else come from? Well, that's a fair question. I remember a lady telling me she was instructing another lady in the Catholic religion and uh, they must have talked about Noah and the flood and the other lady wanted to know why did God tell Noah to take two of every animal into the ark? <laughs> Right, well, I hope I don't have to explain things like that. <laughs> but, if you know why, then you will wonder, well, if Adam and Eve had only Cain and Abel, where did everyone else came from, come from, particularly when Cain killed Abel? Well, in Genesis 4.17, mentions that Cain had a wife. Genesis 4.25 mentions the birth of Seth, another son of Adam and Eve, because after... Abel was killed, God gave a child to Eve again, Seth. And Genesis 4.26 mentions Seth's son, <coughs> Enosh. And Genesis 5.4 says, quote, Adam had other sons and daughters. So, not everything is in chapter 1 of Genesis, or even chapter 2 or chapter 3. 
Sometimes you've just got to read all the way to chapter 5, if you can keep yourself going, and then you'll find the answer. Chapter 5, verse 4. Adam had other sons and daughters. Alright. So they're not all named. Many things in the early texts of the Bible are partial accounts. They're not naming every single person, every single thing happened. So the next question that arises, and even youngsters ask this question, does this mean that brother and sister married at the start of the human race? Yes. At the beginning of the human race, this happened. So at the beginning of the human race, brother and sister married, because marriage between between close relations was necessary and unavoidable at the start of the human race. And then, after two generations, you would have cousins married, that still happens today, and then after that, second cousins and so on. So, once the necessity for marriage between very close relations had passed, God, the Creator, closed off marriage between close family relations. And you'd have to say that God, the Creator, the Almighty, made sure that at the beginning it led to no genetic problems. And maybe, in, in the God's plan of creation, that the genes mixing between brother and sister at the start would not cause genetic problems. And in fact, they don't have to cause genetic problems. The probability is increased, but it's not, um, it's not a necessity. In any case, God obviously ensured for the progress and continuity and the ritual health of the human race that there would be no genetic problems to begin with. Well then, what about science? Doesn't science say there were many men and women at the beginning of the human race? Well, since whenever you find any bones anywhere, you can only give a very rough estimate of how old they are. You know, like, you always hear these figures, you know, that scientists discovered bones, you know, 165 million years old. I always wonder how they know it was 165 million and not 164 million or 160 million. You'd love to know. But it's like that bloke, they say, he was giving a, he was a tour guide at Ayers Rock. And uh, he was telling everyone, here's Ayers Rock, you know, it was formed uh, 500 and 500 million and four years ago. (laughs) 500 million and four? Yes, well, when I began my job here four years ago, they told us that it was 500 million years old. So, at the most, you get the roughest estimates. Therefore, the idea that you could unearth bones all over the earth and then say, wow, look at this. These bones here, look. These are the first bones in the history of the human race. And look, they're 486 million years old. And look, 486 million years old. Right, okay, look. Um, um, now, it's impossible that that one got to that one, even though we're only down to a million years, uh, more or less. It's impossible that they went from there to there in a million years. Okay, don't ask too many questions. Therefore, therefore, look, human beings all over the earth, contemporaneously, proven. If you believe that, you'll believe anything. The estimates of bones are so rough, the idea that you could conclude anything about the origins of the human race and how many human beings there were at the beginning of the race is just ludicrous. What I mean is, if Adam had children and so on, 
It doesn't take very many years that you can start spreading out over an entire continent. And let's say, within 200 years you could be over Europe, or let's say 500 years. But these estimates of the age of bones, they don't come down to 100 years or 500 years. The closest they're, they're narrowing it down to is, you know, a million years or ten thousands of years. So, therefore, that type of precision whereby you must conclude that there were human beings contemporaneously all over the face of the earth is impossible. It cannot be concluded. Now, the fact is that men all over the world, whether they've been formally educated or not, even those who haven't grown up on the internet, can speak. They have the gift of speech, the power to grasp intellectual and moral truths. Generally, if you've grown up on the internet, you won't have that capacity. But if you've grown up in a, in a native and primitive culture, you will have that capacity. The fact is that all over the human race, we can all understand concepts of truth and justice and virtue and, uh, and marriage and fidelity and infidelity and honesty and crime and punishment, etc., etc. Therefore, the unity of the human race in grasping intellectual and moral truths tends to show that we are all members of the same family. And therefore, it's fully consistent with Christian doctrine that we're all descended from an original pair of ancestors. And if you've studied ancient myths, ancient traditions, ancient folklore, it is extraordinary, in some cases, the similarities between some ancient myths, even, say, between cultures of, say, ancient Greece and, uh, say, ancient Native Americans. And the differences between the races and the differences between their languages are really quite superficial. All human races, or all the races, are true to a common type, despite their varieties and considerable differences. On the face of it, you know, people from Asia, Africa, and the Nordic races look very, very different. But the human races are all capable of breeding with one another which is a sign they all belong to the same human species. Therefore, to say they have a common origin is a perfectly scientific conclusion, or a scientific inference. And generally, scientists will conclude that two beings belong to the same species if they can breed with each other. But of course, if they are of a different species, breeding between them is virtually impossible, or normally impossible. Then, as the study of philology and linguistics advances, kinship has been established between many, many languages which at one time were thought to be totally unrelated. I remember seeing a book about 20 years ago called Greek is Hebrew. <laughs> the point of the book was that Hebrew, sorry, that Greek comes from Hebrew. Greek is Hebrew. And so, this writer, being bold and daring and a bit loose at times, admittedly, was showing how Hebrew had developed and had become Greek. Well, if you've ever studied, say, Latin and Greek, although the alphabets are different, you use different characters, there are many, many words which are the same, or, or very similar. So, the word for father in Greek is pate, and the word for father in Latin is pate. And in Greek it's a mater, for mother, and in Latin, mater. The word for is in Greek is esti, and in Latin, est. And there are many other similarities. So, 
It was only really in the 1700s when philology developed as a science that these two languages, which no one saw any similarity between at all, people were able to establish the relationships, and then they can trace these languages back to what they call Proto-Indo-European. And so philologists try to work out what might have been the original form of the language before it branched out and became more or less a separate language. In other words, Latin and Greek have a common origin in what they call Proto-Indo-European. So the relationship between languages favours the idea that there was one original pair. Well, there is a common origin to the human race, that there are not many origins of the human race. And even Time magazine had an article, I forget what it was called, The Search for Eve, or something like that. This was 20 years ago, talking about how genetically, I think through women or whatever, you can, it's, it's totally incredible and almost conclusive to say that there must be a common origin and so the, the, the article was given the title The Search for Eve or something like that. So genetically, the more recent researchers favour the idea that there is a common origin to the human race. So don't be intimidated by so-called science into thinking that you must believe that there are many Adams and many Eves. Now the other big objection to Adam and Eve, returning to religion rather than science, is that the book of Genesis is just a myth. If, is it fair to say that the book of Genesis is just a myth? And why insist that there is history within the book of Genesis? Well, as I'll explain later on in more detail, some parts of Genesis, in the first three chapters, are symbolic, but other parts are to be taken literally and historically. And the church guides us as to which is which. Initially, when you begin to study this, it can be a very confusing thing. And I don't, I don't blame young people or older people who begin to study and they get all confused and then they say at the beginning, well now I don't, I don't know what to think. I myself, I must admit, when I first began studying, I was so confused by reading seemingly good writers and reliable commentators contradicting each other on various points. It took me a long time to realise, you might say, who was reliable on what points and who was unreliable on what points and what may be said what may not be said, and what areas are open to legitimate disagreement. It took me a long time to feel safe in, in judging these various writers. But Pope Pius XII, in his encyclical Humana Genesis, 1950, said this about Genesis. He said, the first 11 chapters of Genesis, although it is not right to judge them by modern standards of historical composition, such as would be applied to the great classical authors or to the learned of our own day, do nevertheless come under the heading of history. In what exact sense it is for the further labours of the exegete, biblical scholars, to determine. These chapters have a simple symbolic way of talking well suited to the understanding of a primitive people. It may be that these ancient writers of sacred history drew some of their material from current popular stories. So much may be granted, but it must be remembered that they did so under the impulse of divine inspiration which preserved them from all error in selecting and assessing the material they used. These excerpts from current stories which are found in the sacred books must not be put on a level with mere myths or with legend in general. Myths arise from the uncontrolled imagination. Whereas in our sacred books, even of the Old Testament, 
a love of truth and simplicity shine out so as to put these sacred writers on a demonstrably higher level than their profane contemporaries. Sorry for the long quotation, but he's dealing directly with that question. Uh, is it history? Yes. In what exact sense? We may further discuss. Is it a mere myth? No, it is not mere myth or legend. And whatever is written was written under the impulse of divine inspiration which preserved the sacred writer from any error in selecting and assessing. So, you can't call Genesis mythical. Well, that's the same document, as I said, where the Pope ruled out the idea that Anne can mean a multiplicity of original ancestors. Always remember this regarding the evolution of man that any theory can only refer to the evolution of the human body, not the soul. Since each person's soul is directly created by God, the soul can never be a product of evolution. So when we talk about the evolution, we're talking about the evolution of the human body, not of the soul. And because the human soul is spiritual, it cannot arise through any natural process. It requires God's direct intervention. Therefore, even if you believe in evolution, there's no reason to say that many human beings had to appear on earth at the same time. Because not even one human being can appear without the directive, creative act of God. Therefore, there's no scientific reason to say there had to be many human beings at the start of the human race. Did God have to create many human beings? No, he didn't. And we say, through the Bible, through Revelation, we know he did not. He could have, but he did not. He decided to have one human race descended from one original pair. So God created the soul of Adam from nothing. It was a direct creation. Now, if you believe in evolution, you're saying that God took an animal body, transformed it and elevated it, so that it could be capable of being united to a human spiritual soul, and that's what he did. Or, you can believe that God took matter straight from the earth to fashion the original body of Adam. I remember discussing with a priest who is totally orthodox in his belief, and who believes in evolution, I said to him, but look, if you believe in evolution, does that mean Adam went home at the end of the day tilling the ground and said, Hi Dad, hi Mum, and they said, eek, eek, eek. <laughs> I said, think about it, think about it. I said, in some sense, they're his father and mother, they produced his body, even if God transformed that body. Well, he never thought about it. And I don't think many people have thought about it. And they should think about it. Anyway, you can believe if you want it. I just don't think it's very dignified to say Adam's body came from a male animal and a female animal. Certainly if you want to believe it, you can. The church has not ruled it out. But this is the point, that no human person can appear on the earth except by divine intervention, by God's creation of human soul. Hence, there's no scientific reason why several human beings had to appear at the start of humanity. Oh, Vatican II changed the church's teaching on Adam and Eve. Did you know that? You've obviously never been to teacher's college. <laughs> this is what you're missing out on. You probably never went to school. 
Vatican II changed the church's teaching on Adam and Eve. Here's a quote from Vatican II. Fallen in Adam, God did not, God the Father did not leave men to themselves, but ceaselessly offered helps to salvation in view of Christ the Redeemer. At the end of time, all the just from Adam and from Abel to the, the just one to the last of the earth will be gathered together with the Father in the universal church. Here's another quote. This is from the document of the church. The Virgin Mary is acknowledged and honoured as being truly the mother of God and mother of the demon. And a few lines down. At the same time, because she belongs to the offspring of Adam, she is one with all those who are to be saved. So if you don't believe that, you have to believe that the Virgin Mary is not one with us, but she might be one with some of us, but not one with others of us, because we don't know who's descended from whom. No, the church says she's one with the children of Adam, because she herself is a child of Adam. Lumen Jensen, the document of the church, 55, says the mother of the Redeemer is already, already prophetically foreshadowed in the promise of the victory over the servant which was given to our first parents after their fall into sin. Number 63 says, The Blessed Virgin, by her belief and obedience, not knowing man, but overshadowed by the Holy Spirit, as the new Eve, brought forth on earth the very Son of the Father. And so on. And in the document on divine revelation, it talks about our first parents. And Gaudium et Spes, the document on the church in the modern world, says, number 22, it's a very, very well-known text. The truth is that only in the mystery of the incarnate word does the mystery of man take on light. For Adam, the first man, was a figure of him who was to come, namely Christ the Lord. That's almost a quote from St. Paul, Romans chapter 5. Christ, the final Adam, fully reveals man to man himself and makes his supreme calling clear. And so on. And then the Catechism of the Catholic Church, as I mentioned, on 13 occasions talks about Adam or Eve or our first parents from whom we are all descended. Now I have to take a step back to see how we or anyone can interpret the Bible correctly. Because we've all got the same Bible in our hands, but this professor or that teacher says, yes, yes, but that's mythical. So although we have the same text in our hands, the interpretation does or undoes the text. Well, any study of the Catholic position on Genesis must begin from the Catholic understanding of the Bible, because that's the foundation of biblical interpretation. So the Bible is not just any book to be worked over according to the rules, to the general rules of interpretation, but the Bible is the book whose author is Almighty God. And it has only one authorised interpreter, the Catholic Church. So the Church says the Bible, in its origin, is inspired by God. And God, therefore, is its author via the human authors. And that's why the, book, the Bible is called the Word of God. It has a unique character in that it is free from error. And the official interpretation of the Word of God has been entrusted to the magisterium, or teaching office, of the Church. 
And there's two rules I can pull out here which are relevant to understand or to remember when you're going to read the Bible. Firstly, no one may interpret a text of Scripture in a manner contrary to a teaching of the church. So if you read the Bible and you think, oh, look, it says here, the brothers and sisters of Jesus came looking for him. Oh, Oh, okay, so Mary had other brothers and other children, and uh, Jesus had brothers and sisters, blood brothers and sisters. Oh, well, the church must be wrong on that, because the Bible says this. No, 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 that interpretation is wrong. So no interpretation is valid if it contradicts the teaching of the church. Is the Bible wrong? No, it's got to be interpreted correctly. What does brother and sister mean in the original language? Because, as some fundamentalists don't know, the Bible was not written in English. In fact, I remember Father Stanley Yaki talking about some American fundamentalists in the court case actually said in, the, in this school they refused to teach any other language than English and uh, this teacher got up from this fundamentalist school and said if English was good enough for our Lord, it's good enough for us. <laughs> <laughs> so, we're not fundamentalists. And just because you believe in Adam and Eve doesn't make you a fundamentalist. But he obviously thought that the Word of God came down to earth in, in, the, in the King James Version of, of um, was it 1611? Yes. <coughs> and secondly, no one may interpret the text of Scripture in a manner contrary to the unanimous agreement of the fathers. So we're the fathers of the church. St. Cyprian, St. Justin, St. Augustine, St. Cyril, St. Basil, St. John Chrysostom and so on where they teach the same point, where they're united in their interpretation, you may not interpret a text of Scripture differently, in a manner contrary to them. And therefore, logically, the teachings of the Church are consistent with the Bible. And we know that the truths which God has revealed are found in sacred Scripture and in tradition. And tradition embraces the Father's, the ancient liturgies, the ancient works of art in the catacombs, and then the pronouncements of popes and councils. Well, a hundred years ago, 107 to be exact, 1902, Pope Leo XIII, in the year before he died, established the Pontifical Biblical Commission. And it had authority for 69 years, to be exact. It had authority as an organ of the magisterium to pronounce on biblical questions in the name of the Pope and with the authority of the Pope just as the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith does on questions of faith and morals. Well in 1909, this is the centenary of this pronouncement, the Pontifical Biblical Commission gave eight rulings on the first three chapters of Genesis. And then in 1948 they addressed a letter to the Archbishop of Paris talking about the rulings of 1909 and then Pope Pius XII took up those ideas and he repeated them in his encyclical of 1950. And I've mentioned some of what Pope Pius XII said about the interpretation of the first 11 chapters of Genesis. And the key points were that they were not written with the strict historical method of classical historians or modern historians, and that the history they contain is set forth in simple and figurative language. And therefore the account is not to be read as a rigorous history of what transpired, 
nor is it to be read as a rigorous expression of the scientific ideas of that time or any time. So, some books of the Bible differ in others in what we call literary genres. Their mode of expression is quite different. And even in the teaching of our blessed Lord, he used different literary forms. So at times our Lord spoke directly and plainly in terms of imperatives. Love your enemies. Love one another. And at other times he used illustrations. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven which a woman took and mixed with silk. He told parables. A man had two sons. The younger son said to his father, Father, give me the share of my inheritance. Well, only an idiot would have said, Oh, what were their names? When was this? <laughs> it's, it's not any particular two person. It's a story to convey a truth. It's a parable. And sometimes the Lord performs symbolic actions, such as cursing the fig tree. Even the miracles are symbolic actions, turning water into wine. It has a significance beyond the mere chemical transformation. It has a significance about the new ablutions that's coming, the new abundance of grace that's coming in the New Testament. So, in the Old Testament too, there are similarly different styles of writing. In the New Testament you've got historical books like the Gospels and the Acts of the Apostles. You've got letters of St. Paul and you have a prophetic book, the Apocalypse. And I hope everybody knows here that you don't read the book of Revelation, the book of Apocalypse, thinking that everything is literally true. For example, the one that everybody focuses on, the mark of the beast, his number is 666. You know, and some people thought of when they buy a computer, they look underneath and, and open it up just to make sure no one's written 666 on the inside, and then they know they haven't got a beastly computer. <laughs> So what's the number 666? Well, when St. John the Apostle wrote the Apocalypse, he didn't use 6 the way we draw it. So, when he, you know, it, the whole thing doesn't hang and fall on this particular shape to signify the number 6, and he says, this is his number, let the reader understand. Now it's, it's a code, which, which is not to do with writing three digits. And of course, if you're going to write it in Greek, you needed more than three digits. So if you're going to write it in Roman numerals, you know, you have to put what is N for 500 and, you know, C for another 100 and then L for 50 and then X and then and so on. So, it's not three digits. It is using Arabic numerals as we now use. Well, the book of Genesis does not describe creation in a manner of, in the manner of a scientist or a modern historian, but in a popular style and language. That is clear. And it doesn't, in a way, pretend to be comprehensive. For example, it mentions fishes in the sea, but it doesn't mention those animals that crawl about on the sea, which are not classified as fish. I don't know what you call them. Crustaceans. Exactly. <laughs> There's nothing about crustaceans in the book of Genesis. Therefore, well, there's either two, there's two conclusions you can make. If you're a literalist fundamentalist, you have to say, well, God didn't make crustaceans because it doesn't say so in the Bible. That's one way of taking it. The other way is to say, the sacred writer was not trying to mention every single animal and species on the face of the earth, on the face of the earth under the sea. The point is, God made it all. Sun, 
moon, earth, uh, sky, birds in the sky, fishes in the sea, animals on the earth, man on the earth. Got it? He made it all and put each one in its place. What about crustaceans? Oh, right, crustaceans too. What about kangaroos? You said that same animals that walk on the face of the earth. What about animals that hop on the face of the earth? Alright, alright, animals that hop on the face of the earth too. You happy now? See, only if you don't understand what the writer is trying to do will you ask these types of questions. He probably didn't know about kangaroos. That's why there's no mention of kangaroos in the Bible. But since it's not a scientific book, you don't go looking for every single animal and every single species. But the message is clear. God made all the animals, all the original animals, from which the current animals are descended, and God put everything in its place in accordance with his plan. And we know, especially in the Old Testament, we hear of expressions like, God showed forth the might of his right arm. Well, no, I think oh, God's got a right arm, he's got a left arm as well. <laughs> Our Lord used the expression one time, finger of God. Or the finger of God's right hand. Yeah, if, um, if I cast out demons by the finger of God, know that the kingdom of God has come upon you. Well, it's a figurative expression, obviously, because apart from himself, God doesn't have you know, fingers and hands and so on. And as I mentioned, the book of the Apocalypse is obviously not a literal book, it's a book portraying history in a symbolic way, using symbolic language. And it's replete with references to the Old Testament. No one can understand the book of the Apocalypse unless they have a thorough knowledge of the books of the Old Testament, especially Ezekiel and other prophetic works of the Old Testament. So, don't expect to understand everything in the Bible the moment you pick it up and read it for the first time. The writers wrote in different cultures, in a different language, in time, with times and uh, in times so different to ours, with different types of expression. Different cultures, even today. If you go to another country, if you go to China, the manners, the modes of address, the food, the dress, is very different. You don't understand what's going on, and yet you're both living in the 21st century, and it's a modern country, and yet the cultural differences are quite remarkable. So don't be surprised there if you're reading about something written two or three thousand years ago that you don't get the point straight away. So I mention this to say some things in the book of Genesis use a simple symbolic language which is not very strict, not strictly literal and not historical, but in some things we must understand them literally, as for example with Adam and Eve. So the two extremes that we have to avoid. One extreme is to take every expression literally. And the other extreme is to take almost nothing literally. And that's what happened in, in many teachers' colleges and schools. They just dismiss the whole thing as myth. And you may as well go and read the Iliad and the Odyssey as read the Bible for all the good it's going to do. Okay, some things the Pontifical Biblical Commission, 100 years ago, listed, are to be taken in their literal historical meaning in the early chapters of Genesis. And it lists, among other things, the unity of the human race. In other words, the common origin from Adam and Eve. The original happiness of our first parents in the state of justice, integrity and immortality. The command issued by God to test their obedience. 
their temptation by the devil under the form of a serpent, their transgression and its punishment and the promise of a redeemer. So these things, the Pontifical Biblical Commission said a hundred years ago, must be taken literally and historically. Well, am I a fundamentalist in following that? No, I'm not. Certain things in Genesis cannot possibly be literal. And generally, even those Bible-believing, Bible-bashing fundamentalists, even they, most of the time, are forced to admit you can't take everything literally. Although they always begin an argument by saying, you have to take everything in the Bible literally. But if you push and shove and beat them down, they might admit exceptions. Sometimes, in the Old Testament especially, the writers speak of God in a way that sounds like he's a man, with human actions, human passions, human reactions, and so on. And this is called an anthropomorphic way of speaking. Anthropos, man, morphos equals form. So anthropomorphic means giving God a human form, so to speak. Speaking of God in a human fashion. So in the uh, text just before the flood, it says, I think it was today's reading, or yesterday's reading at Mass, it said something like, God regretted having made man because of sin all over the world. Well, I hope no one here thinks that God really thought, why did I do that? You know, I was warned not to do it, they told me, and I did it, and look what's happened. I really regret it. Now, I'm going to wipe them out with a flood. And then somebody said, no, 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 save at least eight people. But is God really having this type of discussion in heaven? Is the Father, Son, Holy Spirit really regretting what they did and then thinking, well, maybe we'll do this instead? That's a human way of speaking. And that's okay, as long as you're not so stupid as to take it literally. So, as I say, the change is in man. It's not in God. So, God didn't really regret what he did. But it's a symbolic way of saying man so contradicted God's plan and botched up God's plan that God had to intervene to put things right again. So the regret was not really God's, but it was soon to be man. So when you read of God's right arm, hand, finger, or face, as in the book of Exodus, some of the Psalms, Isaiah, and so on, no one would really think that God really has two arms and hands and so on. But, I remember when I was a wee lad, at an airport having nothing to do, I picked up the plain truth. The Worldwide Church of God, Hubby W. Armstrong. And I read this article, and it said, And God has hands! It was in capital. I thought, what? And it was quoting Job. Quoting a thing of the Old Testament, before the Incarnation. God has hands! And I thought, oh my God, what a fundamentalist, he's just a nutcase. He takes everything literally. So when, when it says God showed forth the power of his right arm, this man said, well, if he's got a left arm, he's got eyes, because God saw. Well, that is just so stupid. What can you say? Just don't read the plain truth. <laughs> so, we are not fundamentalists. That's a real fundamentalist. There's only one thing you can say in favour of that man. He's totally consistent. He's taken it to, its, to the nth degree and he's totally consistent. Not case, but 
at least is logically consistent. Unlike others, who begin by saying everything's literal, and then when you push them, they say, oh, well, that's symbolic. You say, well, you are the one who began by saying everything's literal, and now you're back down to the original principle. What do we say? We don't say everything's literal, we don't say everything's symbolic. We say, the church will teach us and guide us as to what is literal, what is symbolic. But when you don't have a church, and you want to save the Bible and believe in the Bible, sometimes you think, oh my God, I've got to save the Bible with all these modernists and atheists and secularists are trying to undo the Bible and deny its historicity. So how can I save it? Oh, we've got to take everything literally and say everything's literal. That's the only way we can stop these modernists from, from proving the falsehood of the Bible. And the result is, of course, you just end up in the most ridiculous and bizarre interpretations when you don't have the church. Here's a few examples of how you cannot take everything in Genesis literally, and no one here would. Genesis 1-3, so the third verse of the whole Bible, God said, let there be light. Is that a literal statement? Did God say that? He's probably Latin said, What language did he say it in? Hebrews? Did, was God speaking Hebrew before there were any Hebrews on the face of the earth? What voice box or lips did he have to say anything? None. Therefore, as everyone understands immediately, it's a figurative way of saying God decided to do it and did it. But God doesn't say words. He did it. He chose to do it. It happened. But for the sake of us who read it, we say God said, let there be light. As I say, God doesn't use any, any languages. This is before anybody, anybody else existed. There's no one to whom he could possibly have been speaking. <laughs> Therefore, it's not literal. So if one says to you, because you believe in our being, you must be a fundamentalist, say, no, I don't believe everything's literal. For example, chapter 1, verse 3. Genesis 1, six times says, God saw that it was good. Well, even that seeing, of course, means seeing with his divine mind. It doesn't mean he had human eyes or he had any eyes. But the divine mind understood that what God made was good. Genesis 2, verse 1. On the seventh day, God rested from all his work which he'd done on creation. Does God rest? It's symbolic, not literal. It's a symbolic way of saying God ceased to create. I suppose the cosmos as we know it, although he would later create human souls. But all the other original acts of creation had come to an end. In that sense, God rested. But God doesn't actually do things that exert himself and therefore cease from exertion and therefore rest. Genesis 2.7 even, even the most die-hard fundamentalist, I hope, would have to admit this text cannot be taken literally. God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. God formed man of dust from the ground. You can take that literally. But did God breathe into his nostrils the breath of life? Can God breathe? Does God have lungs and a mouth? No. So even the, I hope, most diehard fundamentalist has to admit it's not all literal. So we're not fundamentalists. But we do believe in Adam and Eve. Genesis 3.8 After Adam and Eve had sinned, it says, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Now, did God really walk in the garden? Did he have two legs and feet? Obviously not. 
It's a symbolic way of saying they became aware of God's presence. So the change was in them, not in God. God was already fully present. But they became aware of God's presence and the guilt and the shame in the presence of God made them want to hide from His presence. So some things are literal and some things are figurative. And in the matter of Adam and Eve, the church has spoken explicitly on the topic over 20 centuries. These two are our first parents, the father and mother of the whole human race. A couple of other things, which you may, but you don't have to, take literally. We now move to original sin. Eve was tempted by the devil under the form of a serpent and gave the fruit to her husband to eat. Go back before that happened, where were they? They were in the Garden of Eden. And there were many trees in the Garden of Eden. And God said to them, Genesis 2.16, you may freely eat of every tree of the garden. So there were many trees that they ate from. Genesis 2.9, out of the ground the Lord God made to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. So on the basis of these texts, and the tradition of the church, we say, Adam and Eve had everything provided for them that they needed. There was no hunger, there was no thirst, there was no excessive heat, there was no excessive cold. Everything was provided. It was paradise. We use the word paradise because of that word of talking about that place where they began life. And there was one tree, Genesis 2.9 mentions the tree of life also in the midst of the garden. Now, every now and then people get it wrong and they say Adam and Eve ate of the tree of life and they were punished by God. No, no. They ate of the tree of life because God wanted them to eat of the tree of life. And the tree of life, you can take it literally if you want to, but it makes sense to say, it's a symbolic way of saying they were immortal. But the writer uses the phrase tree of life. So there was a tree of life. Oh, right. Oh, I'm going to take some, some of that fruit. That'll keep me alive. You can take it literally if you want to, but the church, in enumerating what had to be taken literally, did not say the tree of life had to be taken literally. Why? Because it's more obviously a symbolic way of saying they were immortal. Now what was the tree they couldn't touch? It was the tree in the centre of the garden. But even that way is a symbolic way of saying if something's at the centre, like we say at the heart of something, that's the crucial thing from where everything radiates. The tree they were not allowed to touch was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Genesis 2.9, Genesis 2.17. That was the tree they were not allowed to touch, not allowed to eat from. Now, the Pontifical Biblical Commission mentioned things that had to be taken literally. It did not say you had to take literally the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Why? Because it's a bit bizarre to say there was a tree. Ah, oh, knowledge of good and evil. Right. <laughs> oh, anyway. It's a, a symbolic way of saying just as a tree provides fruit to nourish you and feed from, this is a special type of tree which gives you power and authority and lordship. It's the knowledge of good and evil. And not just 
knowledge of purely intellectual knowledge, but a mastery over good and evil. And so God said, you can enjoy every single tree, including the tree of life. You can live without death. God's plan for Adam and Eve, by the way, was not that they lived forever on earth, but that one day he would lift them up to heaven. They're not going to live forever and ever and ever in paradise. He would lift them up to the vision of God. So don't think, although, don't think that because they're immortal, they were never going to leave this life. They're going to leave this life in order to be raised to the beatific vision. Body and soul? Yes, body and soul, without death. But they botched it up. And God said, uh, 2.17, Of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall die. In other words, they were immortal until they transgressed God's command by eating that tree. When God says, in the day you eat of it, you shall die, it doesn't mean you'll die that day before, you know, before the sun goes down. It says, the sentence of death will come upon you that day. They lived. Adam lived, I don't forget how long. 900 years or something, I forget. Anyway, a long time. More than 24 hours later. So, this is a way of saying, the sentence of death will be pronounced, you'll become mortal the day you eat of that tree. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Therefore, in art, when you see, as you see in Christian art for many centuries, Eve uh, with an apple, passing it to Adam, or Adam eating of the apple, and the Eve's hand is just there, obviously she handed it to him. <coughs> it's not an apple tree. So don't fall for it when people say, oh, Adam and Eve ate of the apple tree. And you know, that's why Adam's, Adam's apple, you've had some apple, he said. <laughs> that's a myth. It's a myth to say Adam and Eve ate of an apple tree. They ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, if you think about it, if that's symbolic mastery over good and evil, knowledge over good and evil, the power to determine what is good and evil, could Adam and Eve have that power? No, that's God's domain. God gave Adam and Eve his plan for their life, his laws, being, the universe, the way they were to live the human life in preparation for the divine life. They could not determine good and evil. God would tell them what is good and what is evil. And therefore, in trying to grasp that fruit, as the Catechism explains, they were arrogating to themselves the power to determine good and evil. They were trespassing their creaturely status. And what did the devil say to them? No, no, eat this and you'll be like gods, knowing good and evil. In other words, the devil planted in them the idea that God was denying to them something that would make them divine and give them power to determine good and evil. And so, tempted by that desire to be like God in a way that no creature could be, they ate of that fruit. But don't think it was a fruit hanging on a tree, hanging on a branch. They violated God's command. And what was the nature of that command exactly? What was the matter? No one can say with certainty. Different writers have surmised different things. There's no point in mentioning their theories. But the point is it was not an apple tree. So why did Christian art depict an apple tree? The reason is, in Latin, malum, M-A-L-U-M, means evil, and it also means apple. So Christian, right, Christian artists depicted the tree of the knowledge of good and apple, of good and evil. So they depicted it as a malum tree, an evil tree, or apple tree. So by eating malum, evil, 
they depict it as a fruit which is apple, because it was from a tree. So that's the origin of this business of Adam eating the apple. So don't fall for this idea that some people want to do to make fun of ritual sin. They say, oh, fancy Adam and Eve just being punished for eating an apple. What's wrong with eating an apple? There's nothing wrong with eating an apple. But there is something wrong with trying to have the power over good and evil that is reserved to God alone. That was why their sin was so great, and that was why they were stripped of their immortality and other privileges and divine life, because they had violated God's command in a mortal fashion. It was death to body and death to soul. You have been listening to a Lumen Verum Apologetics Lecture by Father Peter Joseph. For more Lumen Verum Apologetics Lectures, visit cradio.org.au.